Hey friends, it's Fred Greenhalgh, producer here at Realm. A new episode of Ominous Thrill is ready for your ears. It's Advice After Dark. Late night radio host Bella Donna delivers extreme advice to the delighted horror of her audience until a creepy listener forces her to confront the brutal consequences of her show. Here's a preview. Welcome to my live stream, Bella. Say hello to everyone. What do you want? Click the link. Watch along. I'm not clicking links from psychos. You put that trash on the radio every night and I'm the psycho. You sound like you need help. I'm not one of your fake callers. My show is very, very real. Do you want to know what it's called? No, I don't. It's called Belladonna Gets What's Coming. Starring you. What? It's really starring me. But it's all about you. And you'd be surprised how many people want to watch you. Get what's coming. I called the police. They'll be here any minute. Yeah, well, we should be done before they get here. Find Ominous Thrill out now, everywhere you listen. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Everything ends. Casper had told his story himself, he wouldn't have begun with a word or a phrase or a verbal utterance of any kind, really. He would have started simply with silence, because that was how it started for him. Silence. And that silence was, for him, as much a part of the story as any of the words he would have used to tell it. That silence was itself an event. It was the soundless starting bell that would begin the ensuing horror. But a story can't begin with silence. It can only end with silence. So Casper's story really began the moment he walked into the Montana scrubland for a few days of solitary bow hunting. On that day, the world was as it always had been. The sun was shining, the birds were singing, the wind was blowing carrying fallen leaves across the open prairie. It was nearing the end of September, and Casper anticipated this to be his final hunting trip of the season. He parked his truck on a secluded gravel road near Judith Landing in Montana and walked west along the southern bank of the Missouri River. He gripped his compound hunting bow in one fist, his quiver of arrows close at hand on his hip. His camping gear was packed into a bulky old military backpack, and as he walked, his worn leather boots left deep prints in the riverbank. Though 
whenever possible, he made an effort to tread lightly. It was always his custom to try and leave things as he had found them. He didn't trample a shrub or bush if he could afford to go around it. He didn't build cairns or disturb natural formations. And he never hunted an animal that he didn't have a permit for. As he came across an outcropping of trees near a wide bend in the river, he noticed a tall, deformed cottonwood tree with the word HOPE carved into its trunk. They were all capital letters and hastily engraved. He stopped for a moment and gazed at the word. He ran his fingers over it, feeling the rough edges of the letters. Casper wondered if a person named Hope had carved it, or if the message was written as a sentiment. Hope was, by all accounts, a cheerful and inspiring word, and Casper knew that. Yet something about the carving disturbed him. Something about the shape of the hastily engraved letters in the trunk of that unusually deformed tree made him feel the antithesis of hope. There was something decidedly hopeless about it. Even after he had left the tree behind and continued his trek along the bank of the Missouri, the carving remained lodged in Casper's mind. He walked west, pondering the carving, wondering about its placement, its meaning. And it was then that he first noticed the silence. It didn't happen all at once, or at least he didn't notice it all at once. Instead, he began to notice small things over time. Things that made the world feel oddly vacant. First, he noticed that the birds started to seem farther and farther away, their intricate songs fading into the distance. He could still hear the breeze, the rustling of branches in nearby trees, the steady flow of the river. But as he walked, the bird song became progressively quieter until it was gone altogether. After nightfall, things became even more perplexing. There were no crickets chirping, no obnoxious mosquitoes buzzing about. It's like every living creature's gone silent, Casper thought. And with that thought came a striking sense of isolation. Sitting there, in that uncanny silence, Casper felt very alone. Which, in a sense, he was. But he was experienced in the outdoors. And as far back as he could remember, the outdoors was a place that he shared with a plethora of living creatures. Every night he had camped, every hike he had taken every hunt he had gone on. He'd been surrounded by signs of life. The sounds of birds and insects were always present. But on that September night in central Montana, there was only silence, save for the occasional gust of chilly wind and the murmuring flow of the river. Impossibly, Casper awoke the following morning to find that nothing had changed. Throughout his second and third days in the wilderness, he neither saw nor heard any signs of animal or insect life. He saw various kinds of droppings, but none of them looked fresh. He walked by a beaver dam, spotted a few birds' nests up in trees, but he didn't encounter a single living creature. He wondered if there had been a local chemical spill if some kind of radioactive runoff had made its way into the area. 
But why had it spared the plant life, he wondered. Why had it taken only the insects and animals? And why hadn't he seen any corpses? He couldn't find any satisfying answers to these questions, but he nevertheless decided to scrap the hunting trip. After his third day in the lonely wilderness, he'd had enough. When he got back to his truck, he tossed his tent and the rest of his gear in the bed, then laid his hunting bow gently in the back seat, still overly cautious about knocking the sight off alignment, despite how troubled he was about what was going on. When Casper sat behind the wheel and slid the key into the ignition, he found that the truck wouldn't start. The engine wouldn't turn over, and the dash wouldn't even light up. At the time, he just figured his battery had died. Only God knew how long it had been since he'd changed that battery anyway. He pulled out his cell, wondering if he could call AAA for assistance. But his phone was predictably dead. So, he heaved his gear back out of the truck bed and slung it over his shoulder. Then he gently lifted his bow from the back seat and locked up the truck before taking off on foot for the nearest town, a small community to the south called Winifred. As he ventured further south, Casper found a complete and continuing lack of wildlife. He hesitated to acknowledge the fact that he hadn't seen a single bird fly overhead since the first day of his trip. Admitting that, he realized that he hadn't seen a single plane or helicopter fly overhead either. It was odd, but he was in rural territory. Hence the fact that nobody had driven by on his walk into town. The route he followed was just a gravel country road, after all. So it wasn't so weird that nobody had passed him on his journey. There's plenty of country roads that sit undisturbed for days at a time, he thought. But again, he wondered if he had accidentally entered some kind of contaminated zone. A place where pollution or chemicals had destroyed the ecosystem. And again, he wondered if he'd put himself in danger by doing so. A moment later, the town of Winifred broke the horizon, putting at least some of his worries at ease. Set amongst open plains of grassland, the bucolic little settlement appeared to hold no more than some hundred or so residents. Night was falling, but it wasn't quite dark yet, and, perhaps unsurprisingly for how small of a town it was, there were no lights on in the community. Still, the mere sight of the place offered comfort to Casper. It was there that he would put his fears of radiation and chemical catastrophe to rest. But when he finally reached the town of Winifred and walked along its small main drag, his fears were not extinguished. They were multiplied. The town, which was small but had always appeared active and vibrant when he'd passed through it, was empty. But it wasn't just vacant. It appeared to have been abandoned in haste. Cars were left unattended in the middle of the road. Front doors hung wide open. One homeowner had apparently skipped town midway through mowing their lawn. With daylight fading fast, Casper went from home to home, searching for any remaining occupants of the town, anyone that could help quell his quickly racing thoughts. When the doors were locked, he would knock, then wait a few minutes before moving on to the next house. When the doors were open, he would poke his head inside and yell out to anyone who might be in there. 
In the third house he found open, Casper noticed an old rotary phone mounted on the wall. He walked inside and lifted the receiver, pressing it to his ear. But there was no dial tone. He hung the phone up and walked further down the hall, until it opened up to a family room. He saw a TV sitting on a cabinet in the corner, and pressed the power button, expecting to be met with an emergency broadcast signal. But the TV didn't turn on at all. He tried a clock radio that was sitting on the kitchen counter, but that didn't produce any results either. Beginning to panic, he ran out of the house. It was full dark now, and there wasn't a single light on in the town of Winifred. The darkness was penetrating, with the only illumination being provided by the moon and the stars. Casper took an LED torch out of his backpack and clicked the on switch, but it didn't even offer a spark of light. He was growing frantic as he barged into the next house, and then the next after that, still finding no occupants, no power, no phone or radio signal, no message of any kind. It was as if the world he knew was gone, and now all he had was the skeleton of that old world. But beyond its edifice, beyond the facade that it presented, it was empty. Nothing worked, and nobody was there. At some point in his desperate search of that small Montana town, Casper had to stop and wonder when was the last time he ate, the last time he slept. He didn't know what time it was. He checked the clocks in a few houses, but they had all stopped at just before 7 o'clock, although he didn't know if it had been 7 that day or a previous day, or whether it was a.m. or p.m. But he knew that it was late, and he knew that he was exhausted and hungry. So he took a can of chili and a few slices of bread from a house that looked like it had enough to spare, and he went out to a field on the outskirts of town, where he lit a fire and set up camp. There were plenty of beds to choose from in town, and he could have gotten a pretty good night's rest in any one of them. But there was something chilling about that place, empty of all its inhabitants, just a shell of what it was supposed to be. So he felt like he would be more comfortable sleeping out in the open air. He cooked the chili over an open flame, but before he ate, he gave a brief offering of thanks to the animal, or animals, whose flesh had been used to make it. This was a ritual of his, a kind of custom he practiced every time he ate meat. He wasn't a religious person and didn't often pray to any deity or god, but he had seen fit from a young age to say a word of thanks whenever he ate the flesh of a creature whether it was one he'd hunted himself or just the processed meat in a can of chili. Sometimes, he reasoned, one thing must end so that another thing can keep going. And it only seemed right to him that he should acknowledge this fact of life. He laid down his bedroll beneath the dark, open sky. Something about the jagged formations of stars above him reminded him of a wide, open mouth. A rigid, white perimeter with a wide swath of darkness at the center. There was something there, he realized, above him, something big and dark that was blotting out the stars. A cloud, perhaps? He didn't know. It seemed too symmetrical to be a cloud. It appeared almost perfectly circular. But whatever it was, it seemed to be an issue beyond him, 
there were more daunting matters at hand than circular clouds. Matters like the sudden disappearance of all people and animals. Matters like the inexplicable failing of all electronics and mechanical equipment. Even those matters, though, were eventually heaved off into his subconscious, as his body, utterly exhausted, descended into sleep. When he awoke, it was there before him, unobscured, somehow disturbing in its presence. It was a large black sphere, and it hung silently in the sky, perfectly still. Casper couldn't tell how large or close it was, but it was big, bigger than the moon, and much closer. With its smooth, ebony surface, the mere sight of the sphere was chilling to Casper. It was as if its presence had triggered something in him, a primal response, a subconscious acknowledgement of something. He stood and broke down his camp, and then he walked back down to the town of Winifred to resume his search of signs for life. At the first house he entered, he took a few slices of bread, a banana, a chocolate bar, and a packet of applesauce. He hadn't realized how hungry he'd been until he'd started eating. After, he started a fire in the house's backyard, where he boiled some water for coffee. Throughout the morning, his search turned up more of the same. No telephones or electronics seemed to work. No cars would start. And he could find no people or animals. Above him, the black sphere loomed in the sky, constantly reminding him that things were out of place, that something was irrevocably wrong, and that he needed to do something, and do it fast. Breathe, he said aloud. Just be here, in this moment. He found that talking to himself provided some sense of relief. It was in the act of hearing, he realized. When he heard the sound of a voice, even if it was just his own, it gave him a feeling of comfort that was palpable, if only temporary. He would ask himself a question in his head and then answer it out loud, as if someone else had just asked it to him. Just gonna head over here and see if there's any potable water, he muttered. I'll be right back. Although it felt odd, it added a much-needed sense of normality to the frightening reality of his situation. As he walked around the little Montana town, stockpiling supplies, something caught his eye. It was a bright orange kayak, leaning against the garage of an empty house. It looked brand new. Up until that moment, he had considered himself more or less landlocked in Winifred. There were no other towns or cities nearby that he could walk to, and none of the vehicles that were left behind would have done much to aid his escape. But as he looked at the kayak, and he thought about the Missouri River, which flowed from just up the road from him, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, he realized that he had a way out. He could stock the kayak with as much food and supplies as he could, and he would float down the Missouri searching for life along the way. He set down the supplies he was holding, walked over and inspected the kayak. Was it a rash idea? Would it be more wise for him to stay there and see if help arrives? No, that would be stupid, he thought. It would soon be winter, 
and winter in Montana is a brutal thing, even with central heating. Could he survive there without power, keeping warm on fire alone? Maybe, but he didn't want to try. He ran his hands along the keel of the kayak. It was smooth, hardly weathered. I think you'll do just fine, he said to the kayak. And then, after a brief silence, he said, Yeah, I think we'll make it. We'll just take it one day at a time. The following morning, Casper slid the kayak up on top of a wheelbarrow that he had modified with two-by-fours and bailing wire so he could use it to wheel the kayak up to the river. Below the kayak, in the tray of the wheelbarrow, he had piled food, a dozen water bottles, an airtight canister of matches, three knives, a crowbar, a hacksaw, six flares, a life jacket, a toothbrush, a few towels, and a bottle of Oxycontin pills that he had found in a medicine cabinet. He had almost left the pills behind, but at the last second decided to bring them. All right, but you should know better, he said as he tossed the bottle into the wheelbarrow. He listened to the pills bounce around in the little plastic bottle. I know, he said back to himself. The sun rose over the Great Plains as he pushed the kayak up the road. And next to the sun, a nameless black sphere stood motionless in the sky. The sight of it still perplexed Casper. There was something impossible about the look of it. Something jarring. Did the sphere have something to do with the disappearances? He wondered. It was possible. But the disappearances had occurred before the sphere arrived. He looked up at it again, wondering if it was watching him. When he made the journey south from the river, he'd done it in just one day. But his trip back up to the river wouldn't be so swift. It wasn't the weight of all his supplies that slowed him down as much as just the sheer awkwardness of trying to balance a kayak on a wheelbarrow. After a day and a half of walking, though, he made it to the bank of the Missouri. But he was too exhausted to get out on the water. So instead, he set up camp. He made a fire and spent some time just sitting next to it, watching the orange flames lap at the air. In the evening, he cooked a can of soup, and then he packed his remaining supplies into the hull of the kayak, which he had staged on the bank of the river, a few feet from his camp. He laid out his bedroll to go to sleep, again under the stars, the stars that were, in one spot, obscured by the sphere. He looked up at the dark, circular shape in the sky. What was this new celestial object? He considered the idea that it was an alien craft of some sort, here to weed out survivors after the initial destruction of civilization. If that was the case, he thought, rolling over. Hopefully they killed him fast. When dawn broke, Casper was already awake. He rose and ate a can of beans and a stale bagel, and then he heated water for coffee over the smoldering remnants of the previous night's fire. He broke down camp when he was done with his coffee, and then he climbed into the kayak and pushed off into the Great Missouri. Casper wasn't particularly keen with a kayak. He never spent much time on the water. He didn't care for the turbulence, the unpredictability. But he had spent a lot of time outdoors, and he was a highly adept navigator. His compass, after all, 
was one of the few mechanical devices that was still of any use to him. Nevertheless, navigation wouldn't matter much when his route was already designated. All he had to do was follow the path of the river. He estimated that the trip would take him no less than five or six months, and it wasn't lost on him that he would be traveling through the coldest part of the year. But what other option did he have? If he stayed in Montana, he would likely freeze to death. But at the present, it was still only the end of September. Or was it October now? Casper didn't know. Either way, he had some time before he had to start worrying about freezing temperatures or snowfall. He looked up at the featureless black sphere in the sky. He wondered again if it was observing him. Something caught his eye about it this time, though. It looked more blue than black now. And it was slightly textured, no longer smooth. It hung seemingly suspended, just below the clouds. He almost felt like he could reach out and touch it. But something about the sphere also felt unattainable to him. Like something he could spend a lifetime chasing and never actually reach. He didn't want to chase after the sphere, though. He didn't even want to acknowledge it. Every time he glanced at it, it made him terribly aware of the fact that something had gone very wrong in the world. Something unprecedented had happened. And he felt like at any time, the sphere could come crashing down out of the sky and obliterate him. In his most terrified moments, he kind of wished it would. Returning his eyes to the river before him, he focused his thoughts on the cadence of his paddles, trying to stay grounded, to stay rooted in whatever was left of reality. The ribbon of blue extended infinitely before him. He had heard the river got muddy as it led further south, but up there in Montana the waters were still crystal clear. Shooting up from the river's northern bank was a wall of Virgil sandstone, it was beautiful, if not a little imposing. Casper was grateful to have been in his favorite part of the country when the apocalypse happened. On the river's southern bank were patches of grass and shrubs, growing even more colorless as winter approached. The skeletal plants were beset with towering oak trees, whose branches were dry and barren. They didn't look to Casper like plants that were entering a winter dormancy. They looked like plants that were dead decaying. Some of them looked gray, appearing almost like they were coated in a fine layer of ash. Casper thought about the sphere in the sky, but he didn't look up at it. He kept his eyes low. He scanned the banks of the river, searching for life. He couldn't possibly be the only survivor. There had to be others, he thought. But even after a whole day on the river, Having covered what he guessed to be about twenty miles of distance, he'd still seen no other signs of life. With the sun setting, he steered the kayak over to the sandy southern bank of the river before climbing out and pulling the vessel up on shore. His legs were stiff and tingly from having been in the kayak all day, and so he sat down on a fallen log and stretched his legs, slowly working the feeling back into them. As he sat there, he began to talk to the log, telling it where he had come from and what he was doing there. He told the log that he didn't plan on staying long, and he promised that he would clean up after himself. 
and then he nodded and said, Thank you. Casper got to his feet, lifting his backpack and his hunting bow from the kayak. He walked a few paces from the shore and pointed at a dry, sandy spot of earth. This a good spot for me to lay down my bedroll, he asked, looking back at the log. And then he set down his backpack. He picked up his bow and knocked an arrow. He peered down the sight at a distant tumbleweed. What, this? he said, looking back at the log. Oh, it's just my hunting bow. And then he squinted and thought, as if the log had just asked him a deep, ethical question. I don't know, he said after a moment. To be honest with you, I don't really know why I hunt. I don't enjoy the act of taking a life. I hate it, in fact. But I know that it's an inherent mechanism of the natural world. Nature is needlessly cruel. Life consumes life. And I guess when I hunt, it reminds me of that. That there's blood on my hands, too. He paused, looking off into the distance. I'm really sorry about it, though, he said, speaking more to himself now than to the log. I hope you know that. I hope you know how sorry I am. He turned and looked back at the log. Nothing, he said. Never mind. Casper's next few days on the Missouri went much the same as his first. He was blessed with good weather and calm waters, and managed to make decent progress, though he still didn't spot a single living creature. On day five, Casper made it to Fort Peck Lake. It was cloudy that day, so cloudy, in fact, that he couldn't even see the sphere. For a while, as he paddled, he could almost believe that it wasn't even there, that everything was fine. It was just another day at the lake, and when it was over, he'd drive his truck down to the nearest bar and buy everyone around. They'd play pool and bullshit and laugh, and when he got nice and drunk, right around 11 p.m., he'd wander outside and call Amber from the truck stop payphone. She would be so happy to hear from him, and she'd tell him that she misses him. And then she'd ask when he's coming home. When's he coming home? He opened his eyes and the fantasy evaporated. Those days were over, he knew. Everything ends, he told himself. Everything ends eventually. When Casper reached the eastern shore of the lake, he discovered that it was dammed, blocking his passage back into the Missouri River. He would have to hike around but he was tired after another long day of paddling, so he decided to make camp and save the half-mile hike for the following morning. When he awoke, the sun was just rising. It illuminated the grassy hills around Fort Peck Lake, but something about the sun's light seemed muted. The grass, the trees, the rocks, the water, all of it seemed to have lost its brilliance, as that thought crossed his mind, he realized it wasn't the light of the sun that was fading, but the color of everything that it touched. There was no contrast, no brightness. Everything seemed to be fading into a monochrome palette, an eternal grayscale. After breakfast, Casper dragged his gear along to the other side of the dam before launching back into the Missouri. 
As he pushed off from the river's bank, he lost his footing and snagged his ankle between two rocks. The current continued carrying the kayak downriver. Casper felt his knee twist painfully before feeling a sudden pop. He managed to pull himself into the kayak as fiery pain shot up his thigh. He felt the quickly swelling flesh around his kneecap, and he knew immediately that he'd incurred some kind of tissue damage. It felt like his ACL was torn, but he didn't even want to consider how that would impede his voyage. Before he could talk himself out of it, he fumbled through his backpack and pulled out the bottle of Oxycontin he'd stashed there. The tablets were blue, each of them containing 30 milligrams of the powerful painkiller. With the pain in his knee still flaring, Casper swallowed two of the pills with a swig of cold coffee. A few minutes later, the pain in his knee began to abate. He felt a warmth come over him. It was a familiar warmth, but one he hadn't felt in a long time. It was at once vile and comforting, miraculous and detestable. He hated how much he loved the way it felt. As Casper floated gently down the river, his heavy eyelids began to fall closed. It was close to two hours later when he awoke, though he had no idea how much time had passed. After nodding off, his kayak had meandered into a small tributary where it had snagged on some reeds. The only reason Casper had woken up was because a tree branch that hung low over the water had poked him in the eye as he drifted into it. He blinked a few times, still feeling dazed. As he assessed his gear, he was marginally relieved to see that everything was still present, with the exception of his paddle, which was floating a few dozen yards upstream. He sighed heavily, cradling his head in his hands. You're supposed to know better, he whispered. You're supposed to fucking know better. He was on the verge of tears, and his knee throbbed as he pulled himself out of his kayak and crawled ashore. He dragged his gear a few hundred yards back up to the river, picking up his paddle along the way. Before he climbed in to continue his journey, he opened the pill bottle and tossed the contents into the river. A heavy blanket of shame lay draped over him, even after he'd continued on his way. He felt like he had failed himself, like he had been given a chance to be someone else, someone better, and he hadn't taken it. He'd run as fast and as far as he could go, but he was never able to get away from himself. With the sun setting, Casper spotted the vacant town of Williston just to the north. He'd reached North Dakota, he realized, and it was just as dead and empty as Montana had been. He steered his kayak over to the shore and struggled his way out of it. It was exceptionally cold that evening, so the first thing Casper did was make a fire. Thankfully, he didn't have to venture far to find the firewood. When the fire got going, he sat down next to it, looking over at Williston a mile or so away. He wanted to go explore the city, to see if there were any survivors there. But he didn't think his leg could handle the trek, so he stayed by the fire, listening for sounds in the surrounding darkness. When morning came, Casper wasn't ready to move. He wasn't prepared to face the empty world, or the impossible shape that floated above him in the sky. The thought of forcing his swollen knee back into the kayak sickened him. 
He had only barely made it to North Dakota, and already he was exhausted for being wet and cold all day. Why bother, he thought. I'm never going to reach the gulf. But he couldn't stand the thought of dying there on that riverbank, so he dragged himself and his gear back out on the water. All around him, the world was growing ever more gray. The ashen color of the trees and the shrubs and the rocks had given way to a shade of gray as dark as charcoal. It was like the planet was on fire, but he couldn't see the flame, just the gradual charring effect it had on the world. Everything the light touched was gray now. Even the water was a choppy stew of metallic-looking mud. He squinted and turned his eyes to the sky. He realized in that moment what the sphere really was. It wasn't a black hole or a UFO. It was a planet. A world of some kind. It had been slowly taking shape over the last few days, and now he could finally see clearly its features. It had blue oceans, rocky landmasses replete with foliage. But how could it exist so close to the Earth without crashing down through the atmosphere? It didn't make any sense to Casper. He thought back on the tree he'd seen at the beginning of his hunting trip. The one with the word hope carved into it. How silly he had been to ever hold on to hope. What hope was there left for him? All the life, all the color, all the things that had ever brought him joy were gone. The world had moved on from him. He could see it there, up above him. The world that he had probably once lived in, but could no longer remember. It seemed so distant now. Just let go, he thought. He pulled his legs up out of the hull of the kayak and draped them over the sides of the boat. He felt the cold, muddy water run past his ankles. Everything ends, he told himself. Everything ends eventually. He pulled one leg over the side of the kayak and heaved himself into the dark water. He sunk deeper and deeper, letting the water fill his lungs, letting it carry him away. It felt cold, and then it didn't feel like anything at all. At four minutes past midnight, on a hazy October night, an inmate named Casper Allen Rainier died in the infirmary at the Montana State Prison. He'd been in the prison's infirmary in a comatose state since he'd suffered a stroke two weeks before. There had been talk about cutting off life support, but it hadn't been seriously considered, as he was still exhibiting consistent brain activity. Rainier was serving a 20-year sentence, having been convicted of vehicular manslaughter and DUI after striking and killing a jogger while under the influence of narcotics. Rainier's nurse a tall, elderly woman named Hope Dawson, had been the last person to see him before he went under. She would later recall that in that moment, he had reached out to her. He opened his hand, seeking hers, his eyes flickering as he teetered on the edge of consciousness. But Hope, having dealt with sick prisoners for years, had no sympathy or compassion to give this man. She just took his hand and laid it back down at his bedside, sending him off, all alone, 
into that dark universe of the mind. Hey, uh, if you're still listening, I want to first say thank you. I really, really appreciate everybody that has checked out the show and listened and written to me. Um, I also want to let you know that I have a Patreon. If you sign up for a $3 donation, you get to hear every episode a few days early. And you also get access to my audiobook, Solace. It's over eight hours long. It's kind of a cosmic horror uh, slash thriller mystery. It follows a burned-out journalist that becomes obsessed with an unexplained missing persons case. You can hear the first 30 minutes of the audiobook on the episode titled Solace. And if you like it, definitely check it out. Subscribe. Uh, You can listen to the Patreon feed, obviously, on the Patreon mobile app, or you can listen on whatever podcast app you like. There's a private RSS feed that you can plug into whatever app you use. And uh, yeah, the book is broken up into sections, so it's a little easier to keep track of where you're at. Check it out. It's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. There's also a link in the show notes of this episode and in the bio of the show that you can click on. So yeah, that's all from me. Um, If you enjoy the show, please leave a rating or a review. And... Yeah, thank you so much. I seriously appreciate you guys. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.